study through the book of Habakkuk this morning, we find ourselves at chapter 2, verses 6 through 20, as we'll be looking at the second part of God's second response to Habakkuk. And as we just saw in the children's message, we are going to be looking at the justice and the goodness of God this morning. Now, as you'll recall from last week, and I and as I put as a little, short little recap in our sermon outline that you should have gotten uh, in your emails this week, um, we saw last week in the first few verses of chapter two that God was reminding Habakkuk of three things in preparation of what we will read this morning. First, he reminds him that God was going to do something about the evil of the Babylonians, but they would have to wait for its appointed time. Second, that they would have to do this by faith, trusting that God would be true to his promises no matter how long they had to wait for them. And third, that this faith was necessary because while they waited for God's promises to be fulfilled, sin and evil would continue in the world as if it were winning. And these are all important foundations for what we will see in today's text in Habakkuk 2, 6 through 20. Because Habakkuk now, with that found, or God now with that foundation, can show Habakkuk this full vision of the justice he was going to bring against the Babylonians. Now, before we dig in, I'll, I'll, I'll briefly mention this. This vision comes in the form of a taunt song. Now, we don't we don't aren't experienced with taunt songs too much, but a taunt song is is here. It's where the defeated nations, so all the nations that the Babylonians had defeated and conquered, are now pictured as coming out in front of the Babylonians and singing this song against the impending judgment that was going to come against them. And specifically, they sing these five woes which we see are five specific sins of the people of Babylon that caused God great sorrow and distress. And as such, just like other woes in prophetic texts, they will receive the pronouncement of God's promised judgment. So this vision here is pictured as the defeated countries coming out and singing against Babylon saying, here are all the things that God is grieved that you have done. And here is the judgment that is going to come because of those things. So this morning, I want to look at these five woes as sins that God uh, will bring ju justice against with the ultimate goal of seeing this morning that the holiness of God will not endure sin forever. Right. It's a good. My hope is that that is a word of comfort, because I think even in a time like we're facing now in our lives, it's really easy to feel like, Lord. Is this just going to last forever, right? Is this brokenness and this sin and this evil of this world just going to go on forever? And it's important that we see in texts like this that God's holiness will not and cannot endure sin forever. So with that in mind, let's read together from Habakkuk chapter 2. We're going to read verses 6 through 20 this morning. Habakkuk 2, 6 through 20. Shall not all these take up their taunt against him with scoffing and riddles for him and say, Woe to him who heaps up what is not his own for how long and loads himself with pledges? Will not your debtors suddenly arise and those awake who will make you tremble? 
then you will be spoiled for them. Because you have plundered many nations, all the remnant of the people shall plunder you for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Woe to him who gets evil gain for his house to set his nest on high to be safe from the reach of harm. You have devised shame for your house by cutting off many peoples. You have forfeited your life. For the stone will cry out from the wall and the beam from the woodwork responds. Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city on iniquity. Behold, it is not from the Lord of hosts that peoples labor merely for fire and nations weary themselves for nothing. For the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink. You pour out your wrath and make them drunk in order to gaze at their nakedness. You will have your fill of shame instead of glory. Drink yourself and show your uncircumcision. The cup in the Lord's right hand will come around to you and utter shame will come upon your glory. The violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them, for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. And what profit is an idol when its maker has shaped it, a metal image, a teacher of lies? For its maker trusts in its own creation, for when he speaks, for he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, arise, to a silent stone, arise, awake. Can, you can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath in it at all. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for this word this morning. And although it's tough and although it's long, we just ask that you would Allow your spirit to open our hearts and minds to what you would have for us this morning. May we remember that you are good, that you are just, and that you are bringing an end little by little to the evil and the sin in this world. Thank you for this word. Be with us now as we study it together. In Jesus' name, amen. Now, because this section is poetic, it's both incredibly difficult and incredibly easy for us to read. Now, what I mean by that is it's difficult in that it has a lot of imagery and symbolism that will need some thought and explanation, and it's going through five different themes. So right as we start to think about one, another one comes, and a third one comes, and a fourth one comes. But it's easy because it's five specific themes. It's actually broken into five sections with three verses each. So we can take our time and look at each of these five sections and the three verses in each one of them. So again, let's look at these five woes in order to understand the imagery here and ultimately see that the holiness of God will not endure sin forever. The first woe shows us that God is grieved by those who love greedy gain. God is grieved by those who love greedy gain. God begins the second half of verse six, with woe to him who heaps up what is not his own. You see, not only had the Babylonians taken what was not theirs, but they had also loaded others with pledges or heavy taxation and interest on loans, especially for those who were poor. But God says here that this injustice would not last for long. He continues and says that those debtors 
whom they had taken from will suddenly arise and the spoil that they had accumulated for themselves would actually be the spoil that they would take back for themselves. You know, in other words, the plunderers would be plundered by those whom they had plundered. And what's worse is that this would be done from the remnant that they had left. I mean, imagine the shot to their ego, you know, the great and powerful Babylonian empire, when those whom they spared as weak and helpless were the ones who ended up bringing their downfall, taking back all the stuff that they had taken from them. I think it's a good reminder for us today that in the hands of God, even a weak and helpless remnant from among the nations is enough to overcome the powers of sin and evil in this world. Those committed to greedy gain grieve God and will be punished for the blood of man and violence to the earth that comes from their selfishness. Now, I think Proverbs 15.27 is really helpful here. It says, Whoever is greedy for unjust gain troubles his own household, but he who hates bribes will live. You see, greedy gain only brings trouble back on that person, and the Babylonians would soon learn that lesson. God is grieved by those who love greedy gain, and they will see that the things that they love are actually fading, will actually be taken from them never bringing them true happiness and true joy. Now, much more could be said about that sin, but God actually continues in this section by taking this sin a step further. In the second woe, he says, not only is he grieved by those who are committed to greedy gain, but he's also grieved by those who are covetous. He continues in verse nine and saying, woe to him who gets evil gain for his house. In this instance, their house was their dynasty, and they had come to build it from the passions and desires of their hearts that manifested in covetousness of what was really others. Thus, they had become paranoid of others doing the same to them. We read, setting their nest on high, like a bird who builds his nest in the cliffs of a mountain so that it would stay safe from their enemies. You know, and the Babylonians had done this by trying to make their cities impregnable and inaccessible so that the enemies wouldn't be able to take away what they had accumulated for themselves. But they had done this, says God, by devising shame as they justified the cutting off of many peoples in order to obtain their possessions. In doing this, God says they have forfeited their own lives and that they and that the stone and the wood from the plundered nations that they had built their dynasty with would actually cry out against them and convict them of their wrongdoings. Their covetousness had manifested in taking the lives of others, and the result would be that even the stuff that they thought they wanted so bad would cry out against them for what they had done. And again, I just think this is such a humbling image the great and mighty Babylonians are those who have locked their doors. They've boarded up their windows so that no one could come and take the stuff that they had stolen from others. And as they huddle, you know, hugging their possessions really tight, even those possessions cry out to their paranoia saying, look what you have done. This won't truly make you happy. 
I just think it's, again, it's such a great picture of the crippling anxiety that comes from a life of covetousness and consumerism and materialism. Right? Again, I think the book of Proverbs gives us a good word here. We read, such are the paths of all who go after ill-gotten gain. It takes away the life of those who get it. Those of us who live in covetousness of what we don't have will actually find that it takes away the very life from us that we think that we want as we spend our whole lives trying to get what we don't have, thinking that that will truly make us happy. And what we see is that not only is God grieved by covetousness and those who live in such a way will actually find that the life they are striving for is no life at all as it's filled with anxiety, with paranoia, and utterly with unhappiness. So God is grieved by those who go after greedy gain. He's grieved by those who are covetous. But the third sin that we see here that God is grieved, here, uh, grieved by is those who are violent. Verse 12 says, Woe to him who builds a town with blood and founds a city in iniquity. God says not only is this wrong, but it's pointless as they will see that their toil for luxuries and the cities they built out of violence and cruelty will all one day be destroyed. In other words, as it says in verse 13, they labor for fire and weary for nothing. But not only do they labor for nothing, it's especially foolish for them to try to build their own kingdom through violent bloodshed, since this is not the kingdom that will remain eternally. Instead, we get this great verse in Habakkuk 2.14, the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. You see, in contrast to the self-exaltation of the Babylonians whose efforts come to naught, God promised that the whole earth would recognize his glory and not theirs. So although the Babylonians thought that their kingdom had covered the earth and that it would remain, they would one day see that it is God's kingdom that would cover the entirety of the earth and would remain forever. And again, think back to the book of Daniel too where the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar has this dream of an image that's made up of many different materials. And as David is interpreting it, he says that these, each of these different materials represents a different kingdom that will come and go. But in the end, he has this great vision in, in this dream that says, but a stone that was not cut by any human hand will come and strike the image, will smash it to pieces, after which the stone will become a great mountain and fill the whole earth. The image is clearly showing that although kingdom after kingdom would come in violence, thinking it was the most powerful, that it would remain forever, it was God's kingdom that would come in an instant, would smash their false kingdoms to pieces, and would remain eternally as the one true kingdom. But there's something else important to note here that we often miss when we take this verse out of context. The knowledge of the glory of the Lord only comes through the judgment of the wicked nations as it replaces man's perceived glory with his own 
leaving him standing alone as ruler and king. What that means is that God's kingdom, although already begun here on earth through the church, cannot be fully known or made apparent until he comes again and once and for all removes evil from this world. Right? God's kingdom isn't going to come and compete with the kingdoms of man. It's going to come and smash to pieces the kingdom of man and replace it completely. This is especially true when we remember that God's glory includes his presence, which cannot be made fully known to the ends of the earth until he comes again in fullness of his glory as the one true king of the only kingdom that will stand into eternity. His presence and his kingdom will come as the waters cover the sea. In other words, it will reach every corner of the earth in overabundance. I love that, overabundance. So just like we saw last week, although wickedness may last a while, it will not always prosper as the earth will one day be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord and his kingdom will break apart the kingdoms of this earth and it alone will stand forever. Violence grieves God, but it would not prosper forever. But it's not just violence and greed that has God so upset here. The fourth woe shows us that God is also grieved by those who enjoy overindulgence. We read in verse 15, Woe to him who makes his neighbors drink to make them drunk in order to expose their nakedness. Like I briefly said last week, it is not drinking in general that God is condemning here, but the overindulgence that results as we see here played out in drunkenness and immodest behavior. This is the problem of sin. Again, book of Proverbs is mightily helpful for us this morning. Proverbs 16, 29 says, wickedness loves company and leads others into sin. You see, sin is never happy alone. And the Babylonians here had drugged their neighbors into their own sin, humiliating and embarrassing them for their exploitation and amusement. In particular, uh, Babylon often forced others to become intoxicated so that they would become easy prey for them. But when we get to verse 17, we see that there's another sense of overindulgence that they were guilty of here as well. We read that the violence done to Lebanon will overwhelm you, as will the destruction of the beasts that terrified them for the blood of man and violence to the earth, to cities and all who dwell in them. Now, when you go back and you read through the Old Testament, you see that the cedars of Lebanon were known throughout scripture as this mighty forest where mostly wealthy and royalty would go and get wood for their buildings. Clearly, we see here that they had decimated the forests of Lebanon and destroyed the animals in them in their military, military campaigns and in building their dynasty. But moreover, in using this lumber for their military campaigns, they had not only overindulged in using a lot of God's creation in general, but they had specifically used it for purposes not intended. Again, their passions had caused them to revel in the pleasures of this world at the expense of others as they had overindulged in the good things that God had created for them to enjoy in moderation. And God's word to them here is definitely not a light one. 
He says, just as you have made others drink and become exposed, they too would drink the cup in the Lord's right hands, exposing themselves and revealing that what they thought was their own glory was actually utter and complete shame. This cup in the Lord's right hand is the cup of retribution or the cup of God's wrath, which was held in his powerful right hand. We see this imagery all over the Old Testament, but we know it primarily best as the cup of God's wrath against sin that Christ refers to when he tells James and John that they cannot drink the cup that he is about to drink. Because if they did, it would destroy them just as it was meant to do here to the Babylonians. But Christ, who is the only perfect human being fully God also, was able to drink the cup of God's wrath for sin, experiencing the shame and death it brought in our place so that we would not have to. This idea of reciprocal justice really doesn't appeal to us today. So when we read that God will repay their drunkenness and shame by making them drink this cup of wrath for their own shame, I think we often have a hard time you know, swallowing it. But it's important to see that reciprocal justice is exactly what we see in Christ and his death on our behalf. And it is his work on the cross that allows us to not have to fear or worry anymore about God's reciprocal justice being poured out on us, right? God cannot let sin go unpunished. And although he no longer says eye for an eye, we look to Jesus because he took our place in taking that punishment. Sin needed to be punished, and instead of us being punished for it, Jesus drank the cup of God's wrath in our place. Therefore, we who live by faith in Christ know that we will not have to taste the cup of God's wrath since it has already been drunk on our behalf by Jesus. But here we see that the Babylonians' sin will come back on their own heads and their sensuality will actually be their downfall. And again, I like, like I said last week, we remember back in Daniel 5.1 that the Babylonian Empire actually starts crumbling down primarily when King Belshazzar made a great feast for a thousand and drank wine in front of that thousand. You know, what they overindulged in would actually end up becoming their downfall. So overindulgence grieves God, especially when it goes against God's will for how we relate to his good creation. And almost in summary fashion, God shows Habakkuk and us one last sin that grieves him in his fifth woe. Specifically encompassed in all the others is those who commit idolatry. We get to verse 19 and we read, Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, Awake to a silent stone, arise. See, the Babylonians had both trusted and forced others to trust in literally in the Hebrew text, a carving of the carver or a design of the designer, or this is my favorite, a speechless nothing. Because that's what idols are, right? They are speechless nothings that pretend to be God, but are mute, are dumb, are dead, unable to give us what we really need. And I think when we read about idolatry in the Bible, it's really easy for us today to say, oh yeah, we don't make statues and carvings anymore. So we don't ever have to worry about being idolaters. 
But we need to see that whenever a person's desires looks to the creature or the creation rather than the creator, he is guilty of the same kind of foolishness that we see here. I mean, imagine the frustration of God as he gives us good things and we take them and turn them into our gods, forgetting the one who created and blessed us with them in the first place. God says that idols are teachers of lies. They are dead. They are speechless. Yet how often are we foolish enough to put all our trust in things like our jobs, in our families, our health, our possessions, our wealth, our status. These things are good things given to us by God that we tend to turn into our gods looking for happiness in. You know, when we look to these things for our happiness, we will always, always, always find that they can never live up, right? When we make our marriages an idol, and we look for happiness in our spouse, we will find that we will be disappointed at times. When we look to our jobs for our sense of happiness, our wealth, our health, we will find that we will be disappointed. But when we look to God, the creator, the good and just God, as the one who we worship, we will find that he is always able to give us exactly what we need and always cares for us. And just like in verse 14, he again shows us the foolishness of worshiping idols as he says that he is in his holy temple, right? This isn't the, the measly earthly temple or building that we try to pretend that God is limited to. This is his heavenly throne room where he sits and he watches over the whole world as the rightful judge and ruler of the universe. You see, in contrast to the idols that they served, the Lord is reigning as the living, sovereign God of the universe who calls the world to be silent before him. None can assert their independence from him. All the earth must worship him in humble submission. I love it. In essence, the idolaters will become as dumb and speechless as their idols. And Matthew Henry just says it so right. He says, our rock is not like that rock. Such a good line. Our rock is not like that rock. God is deeply grieved by idolatry, but whether we want to or not, one day every knee shall bow at the name of Jesus, and we will have to admit that he is the king of the universe and that the gods that we have created with our hands are worthless in comparison to the creator of all things. Habakkuk had begun his dialogue in an effort to understand the mysterious ways of a holy God with sinful people. But as God finishes his second response to him, much like Job in Job 42, Habakkuk now stands in the presence of the Lord's holy temple, hushed in reverent awe. And I think like Habakkuk, we stand here at the end of chapter 2 in awe of God, remembering that the holiness of God will not endure sin forever. Although God's people would have to wait for this judgment to come by faith, and although sin and wickedness would continue for some time, it would not prosper forever. The earth will one day be filled with the knowledge of the glory of the Lord and, will and the whole world will stand in silence before him. 
even when things appear to go from bad to worse, God still rules and will vindicate himself. Therefore, like we began to see last week, the hope of the godly who live by faith is in the full establishment of God's righteous and glorious kingdom. So although he is already active in eradicating the current evil in this world, our true hope and comfort is in the fulfillment of his promise to eradicate it fully one day when he comes again to usher in his kingdom here on earth as it is in heaven. So even though these sins and many others are very evident in the world today, we remember his promise last week that the righteous will live by faith. That's what we're called to do in light of a world that is filled with brokenness and sin. We are called to live by faith, remembering that the holiness of God will not endure sin forever. And if that's true, we must conclude this morning by asking ourselves two final questions. First, are any of the sins that grieve God in today's passage evident in my life? Because for those who have put their trust fully in Jesus, we are called to be new creations in his image through the guidance of his spirit. That means we must daily wake up and say, Lord, today I am going to live according to your spirit at work in me and not according to my sinful flesh that only wants to glorify myself. Right? Each morning we're going to have that battle. Wake up and say, Am I going to listen to God's direction for my day, or am I going to listen to my own? And we see here that when we listen to our own, it almost always leads to the consequences of our sinfulness. But when we wake up and we say, Lord, we want to listen to your spirit. We want you to guide us today. We will see that he will direct our steps and that we will live by faith in light of the sinfulness around us. So if these sins are evident in your life, pray to God today that he would help you to remove them from your life so that you can fully live for his glory. And second, and I think this is a particularly important question for us today in light of what's going on in the world. Is my hope in God's promise of future glory? Or do I spend more time fixated on my current trials? Guys, this question, I mean, for whether it is pertinent to you or not, it is so pertinent to me. I mean, this, this question is preaching to my heart. I feel like I often look around at my current circumstances and say, Lord, I know that good is going to come one day, but why aren't you doing it now? Why, are all, why is all this going wrong right now? Why do I have to be you know, inconvenienced now by this, that, or the other thing? But when we remember that our hope is in God's coming kingdom in the future glory that's going to come, we can live by faith like we read last week, knowing that all of this brokenness, all of this inconvenience, all of the sin in this world is temporary. It's fleeting. It's passing away. God will one day put it to end completely. So ask yourselves, do I spend more time trusting God's promise of the future glory of his kingdom that will come as the waters cover the sea? Do I stand in humble awe and reverent silence as I listen to God? Or do I spend more time complaining to God about my current circumstances, 
wondering why things aren't going better for me? Am I fixated on God's promises or am I fixated on my own current trials? Remember that God's kingdom is coming, full of glory, and will fill this earth like the waters that cover the seas. And remember that the Lord is in his holy temple, watching over all things and bringing good things even out of evil. The holiness of God will not endure sin forever. May that be our hope until he comes again. Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this word. Again, a tough word. A word about judgment, but Lord, a word about justice. A word about holiness and about goodness. And a word that reminds us, Lord, that we can endure even the hardest of times here on this earth because our hope is not in this world, but is in something that's outside of this world. Our hope is in you who sits in your heavenly throne room right now, who is good and perfect and just, bringing good things even out of brokenness. We thank you, Lord, that you do not let sin go unpunished, that you are just and good. And Lord, we thank you that we don't have to fear the consequences of our sin anymore as we trust you and put our hope in you and are so thankful for the work of Jesus on the cross that has taken away our punishment. Lord, may we remember to trust you, to live by faith each and every day of our lives, even when things get tough, even when things don't make sense, knowing that you are good and that all things are working for good for those whom you have called. Thank you, Lord, for who you are, that you are God, that you are good, and that you love us so much. In Christ's name, amen.